Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Being a music fan was much different in the era before the internet. News traveled slowly and often passed through many filters. So many filters, in fact, that a tremendous amount of information was either stripped out or drastically altered by the time it reached us. This was never more true than in cases when something awful happened, like, say, someone dying. Think back to all the confusion and speculation and conspiracy theories that popped up in the wake of Kurt Cobain's death. Three years later, we encountered something similar. It was another suicide. Maybe. And for much of the world, this death was treated as a tabloid story because of some speculative and some very lurid details involving the three key elements, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But for others, especially in Australia, this death was a very big deal and extremely traumatizing. It had such an impact that a quarter of a century later, fans are still talking about what may or may not have happened in a luxury hotel suite in Sydney on November 22nd, 1997. This is the story of In Excess and the death of Michael Hutchins. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The title track of the Elegantly Wasted album, released by NXS seven months before the death of their super charismatic singer Michael Hutchins. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and here's a quote. People killing themselves over stuff they shouldn't. Pop eats its young, that's for sure. That was Michael Hutchins in 1994, not long after Kurt Cobain took his own life. Three years later, people were saying the same thing about him when his body was found in room 524 of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Sydney. And the circumstances were strange, but we will get to that. Hutchins was one of Australia's biggest international rock superstars. His band had sold somewhere near 80 million albums, putting them second only to, uh, who? ACDC, I guess, in terms of Australian success stories. His death was national news in Australia for months, and because of his connections to the UK, the British tabloids feasted on the story again and again and again. Elsewhere, though, North America specifically, coverage wasn't all that comprehensive. In Excess's best years had already passed, and besides, America was in the thrall of the whole Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal at the time. In any case, between the gossip and the speculation, it was hard to get the real story about what happened at the time. However, there have been more investigations in the 25 years since Hutchins died. More information has become available, and now we have a better idea of what actually happened. Let's start at the beginning. Michael Hutchins was the son of an Australian wine importer. His mother was quite the socialite, often entertaining big-name celebrities at the house, wherever they happened to be living at the time. Michael grew up in Sydney, Brisbane, Hong Kong, Los Angeles, even the Bronx. And this explains why his accent was a little odd. It was sort of Australian, but then again, it wasn't. Michael showed promise as a swimmer, but had to give that up after his arm was badly broken. Poetry then became a thing with him. That led to a singing job for a local toy store in Hong Kong. In 1976, when he was 16 and after the family moved back to Australia, he fell in with a trio of school friends in a band that may have been called Dr. Dolphin. Michael would stick with two of the guys in the band for the rest of his life. 
They were keyboard player Andrew Ferris, a kid who rescued Michael when he was being bullied in the schoolyard, and bass player Gary Beers. They thought that Michael's poetry was pretty good, and they had no trouble with him as a lyricist. Within a year, the group had grown into a six-piece. Two more Ferris brothers joined, along with a saxophone player named Kirk Pengilly. And because the Ferris family had a majority, they called themselves the Ferris Brothers. Made sense. Their first gig was on August 16, 1977. So, yeah, the day Elvis Presley died. Straight out of high school, they used a beat-up panel van to haul their gear 5,000 kilometers across Australia. When they didn't make enough money from playing gigs, they subsidized things by selling a little bit of dope out of the van. In 1979, the group changed their name. They became known as In Excess. Their first single was this a May 1980 release entitled Simple Simon. In Excess learned their chops the hard way on the grueling Australian pub circuit. Listen, if you can survive playing original material in the bars and pubs, in the mining towns and sheep stations down under, you can survive anywhere. It can get really tough and really ugly. But In Excess managed to work their way up through the ranks, often playing at least 300 shows a year and developing a uniquely funky swagger. In October 1980, they released their first album, a self-titled record that featured an Australian hit called Just Keep Walkin'. That release was followed in November 1981 by a second Australia-only album entitled Underneath the Colors. The big break came in 1982 when In Excess signed their first international deal. And in October of that year, the rest of the world began to hear about In Excess, thanks to an album called Shabu Shaba. It came out on October 13, 1982, and this was the big single. The Shabu Shaba album did okay, at least as far as introducing In Excess to an international audience. At home, though, the band had become a monster. By the summer of 1983, they were playing in front of 14,000 people at home in Australia. Their first American performance, which was a show in San Diego in March 1983, was in front of 24 people. Things got a little better with their fourth record, their second international release called The Swing. This journey started in Toronto when producer Nile Rogers caught a gig. That led to him producing the album in New York. The Swing was a huge hit at home, where it became one of the five biggest-selling domestic albums to that point, and was also a hit in Canada, and Argentina, and France, and a few other countries. It sold a million in the U.S. too. Only the U.K. seemed immune to In Excess's charms. The band was on the road almost constantly, usually opening for someone like the Go-Go's or the Kinks or Hall & Oates. And then came the fifth album. It was called Listen Like Thieves, and it appeared on October 14th, 1985. This was the international breakthrough they were looking for. And the fuse was lit by this song, which had the working title of Funk Song Number 13. You After five albums, In Excess had established itself as a major international act. But no one expected how big things would get over the next two years. That part of the story is next.
It's hard to understate what kind of a role InXS was on in the latter part of the 1980s, thanks to the Kick album, which appeared on October 12, 1987. Number one album in Australia, in Canada, and New Zealand. Number three in the US and France. And finally, a top 10 record in the UK. The best estimate of total sales is somewhere north of 20 million. In Canada, it sold a million, which, by the way, was twice the number they sold at home in Australia. And five of the 12 songs in the album were major singles. This was one of them. So slide over here and give me a moment. Your moves are so raw. I've got to let you know. I've got to let you know. You are my kind. Here's an amazing thing about the Kick album. When it was done, InXS's manager flew to New York with a master tape to present it to the record company. They took one listen and rejected it. Ah, too funky, too dancey, they said. Look, here's a million dollars. Go back to Australia, start again. But the manager knew that the suits in New York were wrong. He found a way around them, got the album released through college and alternative radio, and boom, instant success. Between 1987 and 1991, NXS was everywhere. Their music, their videos, their concert tours, their albums sold in the millions. A single show in Mexico City grossed more than a million dollars, while a show at Wembley Stadium in London grossed more than three million. Huge amounts for the time. More than 100,000 fans came out to an NXS show in Rio de Janeiro, and some critics went as far as to claim that their only rivals in the world were you too. And while all this was going on, the press could not get enough of Michael Hutchins. He had been transformed into a major star. And why not? I mean, he was handsome, charismatic. He was a rich rock star with sexual energy to burn. And he was a legitimately amazing frontman. In 1986, he made a detour into acting, appearing in a film called Dogs in Space. He had a side project called Max Q. So life seemed to be great. Or was it? Michael was into lots of party drugs, cocaine, ecstasy, methadone, alcohol. He was seen at all the fashionable nightclubs. He was known to use drugs right out in the open, and he was known to get into drunken brawls. Some of the British tabloids started calling him the wild man of rock. And because he dated some of the most beautiful women in the world, he was perfect tabloid fodder. He went out with Virginia Hay, a Bond girl from The Living Daylights. He went out with Belinda Carlisle, the singer of the Go-Go's. Singer Kylie Minogue was a partner for a while. In fact, women had been a real weakness for Michael from the time he was about 15. Back in the early days, it wasn't unusual for Michael to have sex with three women in a night in the back of that old panel van that was traveling across Australia. When he started going out with Kylie, he went from this mild-mannered pop star to this super vixen dude. Michael even admitted that his hobby was, quote, corrupting her. When she and Michael were dating, the tabloids were full of stories about how customs found handcuffs and other devices in her luggage. Gossip columns were filled with tales of all-night ecstasy binges and embarrassing moments at nightclubs. In fact, Kali was allegedly the inspiration for this song after one night that she declared that she was going to dye her hair. After Hutchins broke up with Kylie Minogue, supermodel Helena Christensen entered the picture. 
They got married and lived in an incredible house on five acres in the south of France, where they entertained famous and beautiful people from all over the world. Unfortunately, though, NXS had peaked. After Kick came X in 1990. It also sold extremely well, but their 1992 album, Welcome to Wherever You Are, did not do as well as expected, a victim of the public's growing fascination with grunge and all things alternative. Full Moon Dirty Hearts, which came out in November 1993, fared no better. There were other issues. In August 1992, Michael was assaulted by a cab driver in Copenhagen. He was shoved and ended up hitting his head on the curb, fracturing his skull, and the injuries resulted in him permanently losing his senses of smell and taste. He became depressed and aggressive. He had physical confrontations with everyone in the band, including one time where he pulled a knife. Things weren't going well at home either. There was friction between Michael and Helena. And this is where things really start to get weird. In 1985, Hutchins was a guest on the British TV show The Tube. The host was Paula Yates, and she, for the last 10 years, had been with Bob Geldof, he of the Boomtown Rats and the organizer of Live Aid. Hutchins immediately asked her to come back to his hotel room. She declined, but there was definitely a connection and they may have started seeing each other on the side. In 1994, they met again for Paula's new show, The Big Breakfast. As soon as it was over, the media was calling that interview the most sexually charged TV interview of all time. It took place on a bed with Paula in some sexy clothes, and the two of them completely entwined in each other's bodies. Is it, at long last, a first on The Big Breakfast? We have a guest Oh, such a fantastic guest. I can't even describe it to you, but you'll see in a second. Boy, this is a guest who has tackle troubling trousers. <laughs> this is a guest that has everything that a rock star needs to have. Danger, talent, curly hair, and Australian subtlety. <laughs> and for the first time, this is a guest that I want to have my leg over. And it is. It's the fantastically talented Michael Hutchins. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Where are you? A big Thank sex you. symbol or something. <laughs> Hi. Good morning. <laughs> now, Michael, you've got your greatest hits album out at the moment. Yes, I do. And crikey, I really want to talk to you about that. Mm, I bet you do. <laughs> Why did you decide to um, release it? Because we have so many hits. And, um, right, Bob? Yeah. And, um, we just, uh, I don't know, we finished a contract with an with, uh, American record company and they were going to put one out, so um, we decided to you know, put one out ourselves and do it all over the world properly and, you know, put it out. Does it mean that you delay your proper album? Yeah. Is that a good thing? No, we'll do that. We'll start that in March or something like that. And you still go clubbing all the time? Not all the time, not as much as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> Which was every, every night, but I'll cut it down to, you know, once or twice a week now. But when you go clubbing, you don't come back for three days. No, so that's it, a difference. It's probably sort of the same, isn't it? Yeah, I'm good at it, yeah. That goes on for about seven minutes. Two million people watched it, and the fact that they were both involved with other people was not lost in anyone, including all the tabloids. And both Helena Christensen and Bob Geldof were, of course, tipped off that something was going on. Yates separated from Geldof in February 1995 after 18 years of marriage. And then a month later... Hutchins and Christensen split up after he was caught with Yates in a hotel. 
This made for huge tabloid news in England. One of the biggest stories was the six illegal things Michael did to me on our first night. Paula's new breast implants received major coverage. So did the tales of parties and drugs. And when Paula left Bob after 18 years together, the tabloids went nuts and they weren't particularly kind. Then came the drug raid in September 1996. Police found a sizable quantity of opium and a number of smoking pipes stashed at Paula's house in Chelsea. Michael and Paula responded by saying that the drugs were planted. Must have been these two employees that did it. Meanwhile, Bob Geldof launched a custody battle for the three children he fathered with Paula. There was Fifi Trixabel, Peaches, and Pixie. You could imagine what the tabloids made of that story. There was a fourth child, too. Michael and Paula were the parents of a baby girl named Heavily Harani Tiger Lily. And while he was proud to be a father, Michael was caught in the middle of everything between Paula and Bob, and the strain only made his addictions and predilections grow worse. Makes you wonder where Michael was coming from when he wrote this song for the kick record, doesn't it? By the beginning of 1997, NXS had a new record deal and a new album on the way. Professionally, the group was looking for a fresh start. Meanwhile, though, Michael had his hands full with Paula and an upcoming wedding. He had become paranoid, claiming that his phones and houses were bugged. There was a promo tour through the spring of 1997, followed by one final tour late in the summer. Those who saw Michael at the time, and I was there so I can confirm this, said that he looked tired and older than his 37 years. There were also reports of erratic behavior during some shows. He did see a London psychiatrist named Mark Collins on October 17, 1997, regarding what he termed to be a minor depression. Collins said that there was no sign of any suicidal thoughts on that day. When the tour finished, Michael went back to Sydney to unwind and finalize plans for the wedding with Paula. They were going to get married in Tahiti just as soon as the two of them could find the time. But by the third week of November 1997, Michael was dead. Back after this. Michael Hutchins died on November 22, 1997. There's been much mystery and speculation and rumor-mongering about what actually happened, so we're going to try and untangle things the best we can. The previous day seemed quite normal. In Excess was back home in Sydney filming a TV special for Australian TV. Everybody was pumped up for this documentary commemorating the 20th anniversary of In Excess, which coincided with some dates at home in November and December. Afterwards, Michael went out for dinner with his father and stepmother at a restaurant called Flavor of India. He seemed fine, laughing and joking, his back against the window, watching people coming and going. His father, though, thought that something wasn't quite right. But Michael said it was nothing. He, he was fine. After dinner, this would be about 10.30, Michael went back to his suite, room 524 at the Ritz-Carlton Double Bay Hotel, joking with three girls in the elevator on the way up. There was one last bender. He called up Kim Wilson, an Australian soap opera star and ex-girlfriend. She and her boyfriend came to the hotel where they banged back a bunch of daiquiri, champagne, and beer in the hotel bar before going out to Michael's room. Hotel staff say that they left the bar around 2. The couple left the hotel around 4. And this is where details begin to get sketchy. After the couple left, so this is, like I say, between 4 and 5, Hutchins called Bob Geldof twice. 
Michael wanted to persuade Bob to drop the court injunction against Paula and let the three kids come to Australia for Christmas, but Geldof refused. There was a long, loud argument that went on for about 20 minutes, with Hutchins saying things like, Your children hate you! I'm their father, little man! When are you going to realize that? It was so loud that Gail Coward, a guest in the next room, reported hearing Michael screaming into the phone. At 5.38 a.m., Paula called. She later said that Michael sounded really desperate. Early in the morning, and looking really rough, he went down to the front desk and asked the clerk to mail two letters that he had written, one to Paula and the other to a friend in Hong Kong. And that was the last time anyone saw him alive. Michael made a number of phone calls over the next few hours, mostly reaching answering machines. At 9.38 a.m., he left a voicemail for Martha Troop, his personal manager. Then there was another message at 9.50 a.m. Martha was in New York, so there was a big time zone difference. But as soon as she got the message, and it only took a few minutes after that second voicemail, that she called John Martin, in excess's tour manager. He told her that Michael had sent him a note saying that he wouldn't be going to an important rehearsal that day. Martha called Michael's room, but the phone just rang and rang and rang. We also know that Michael called Michelle Bennett, another ex-girlfriend. The first call to her went to voicemail, but at 9.54 a.m., this is November 22nd, she did answer. She says that Michael was crying and depressed and sounded drunk. She got in the car and headed over to the hotel, first calling up to the room from the lobby and then knocking on the door of room 524 at about 10.40 a.m. Nobody answered. All she could do was write a note, which he left at reception. Apparently, depressed, drunk, stoned, exhausted, Michael went into some kind of violent rage in the room, scattering five different types of prescription pills all over the place and breaking his hand when he punched the wall. Oh, and throwing some of the furniture around, cutting up his face in the process. And sometime between 9.50 and 10.30 that morning, he took a snakeskin leather belt, fastened it to a door, and hanged himself. At 10.50 a.m., his body was found. Michael was naked in a kneeling position facing the door. His head was strained so far forward into the loop of the belt that the buckle had broken. There was no suicide note. His funeral was on November 27th and was carried live on TV across Australia. We gather the people of Sydney, people around the world, to mourn the death of someone whom most of us barely knew. We saw him, a distant figure on a stage, and somehow felt that we knew him. We listened to him sing and felt that it was for us alone. And we, the comparative strangers, gather with those who knew Michael well, those who are here today to remember and to farewell one who was to them a son, a brother, a partner, a father, a colleague, and a friend. This In Excess song featured prominently in the service at St. Andrew's Cathedral. At the funeral, Paula wore a low-cut dress, which attracted attention. And one story is that before the coffin was closed, 
Paula slipped a gram of heroin into Michael's pocket. Meanwhile, a hysterical fan showed up, started screaming obscenities, and threatened to hang himself from the balcony of the church. Turns out that this was some weirdo that had a reputation of deliberately trying to ruin public events like horse races and World Cup qualifying matches. So, what really happened? Well, an autopsy showed that Hutchins' blood was filled with alcohol, cocaine, Prozac, and a few prescription drugs. He was paranoid, depressed, and acting erratic. His death was ruled suicide. But was it? Again, the coroner ruled that Michael Hutchins died by his own hand in that hotel room on November 22, 1997. But then in 1999, Paula Yates made a suggestion, totally contrary to everything she'd said up until that point. On the Australian version of 60 Minutes, she intimated that Michael may have died as the result of solo sex play gone wrong, autoerotic asphyxiation, which he took too far. The coroner was adamant that she was wrong. I quote, There is no forensic or other evidence to substantiate this suggestion. I, therefore, discount that manner of death. Yet, Paula's speculation has become truth for way too many people, and it proved way too juicy for the tabloids not to blow up. Plus, there was an Australian TV documentary in 1999 called In Excess, The Death of Michael Hutchins that blew up this story even further. And given that Michael had a history of sexual kinks, you can see why people would gravitate to this theory. Even his mother went on record as saying that Michael had been with a group of sadomasochists a few months earlier. A magazine did publish some posed bondage shots of Michael. And in one of his last interviews, Michael did speak of trying to achieve the ultimate sexual high. Another theory was that Michael was convinced he had a brain tumor and he was going to kill himself before the tumor did. CAT scans proved that there was no tumor, but just like Kurt Cobain in his stomach problems, at least one friend maintained that Michael said he, quote, would do a Kurt before the cancer got to him. And then there were the hysterical shriekings of Paula Yates, who maintained that it was the argument with Bob Geldof that took Michael to the brink. He killed Michael, she said of Geldof. Later, she waffled between that story and the auto-asphyxiation theory. And later, when Michael was cremated, there was a big fight over his ashes between his family, Paula, and the band. Bottom line is that no matter how many times the coroner stated that Hutchins had been depressed and on drugs and had taken his own life, he was basically ignored. Meanwhile, the tabloid stories kept piling up. What to do with his estate? In excess, it sold tens of millions of albums, so there had to be money there, right? Michael had also invested in a small Australian film called Crocodile Dundee that turned a nice profit, but as it turns out, Michael had been having money problems for years and was practically bankrupt. There was also a complicated series of trusts and holding companies that held at least eight million pounds, but years later, after all the legal fees were paid, there was virtually nothing left. And then there were all the residual stories involving Paula. There were numerous trips into rehab, at least one botched suicide attempt on her part, and the sale of her story to a news organization for close to a million dollars. Plus, there was the whole scandal around the identity of Paula's real father. Her mother insisted that it was Jesse Yates, a British television host. But then DNA tests revealed 
Her real father was another British TV personality named Huey Green. It was all very weird, very tawdry. And then Paula died. It was September 17th, 2000, not quite three years after Michael passed away. It was on her daughter Pixie's 10th birthday. She was with her four-year-old daughter, Tiger Lily. She decided to snort some very pure heroin. And because she had no tolerance after being off the drug for two years, she OD'd and died. She was 41. Bob Geldof took custody of all the kids and adopted Tiger Lily, who was Michael's daughter. And as one final tragedy, Peaches, one of the daughters Geldof had with Paula, died of a heroin overdose herself in 2014. She was 25. In Excess tried to continue after taking a year off after Michael died. There was a period when they used guest singers before signing on to do a reality TV series called Rockstar that ultimately resulted in J.D. Fortune, a Canadian singer, getting the gig. He lasted one album before he was fired, and then he was hired back a few years later. There was a posthumous Michael Hutchins solo album in 1999. He'd been working on tracks until about three days before he died. There were half a dozen books and biographies, and there have been at least two major documentaries. Michael Hutchins, The Last Rock and Roll Star in 2017, and Mystify, Michael Hutchins in 2019. Despite all that, there are still unanswered questions, and they'll most likely stay that way. Gossipy stories have always been front and center when things involve the death of rock stars. And now with the internet, conspiracy theories and disinformation travel faster than the speed of light. You have to wonder how Michael's story would have blown up had he died today. If he were alive today, NXS would most likely be one of those big heritage bands that probably would be earning big money by touring to baby boomer fans and their kids. And given what NXS had accomplished in the 1980s, we'd all be talking about how Michael Hutchins is one of the greatest frontmen in the history of rock. If you want more information like this, there are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available on all the platforms. Feel free to take as many as you want. We can meet up on my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Get the free daily newsletter so you don't miss anything. And I'm always lurking around Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 